Chapter Eight of A Phantom Lover by Vernon Lee. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It became clear to me now that, incredible as it might seem, the thing that ailed William Oak was jealousy. He was simply madly in love with his wife, and madly jealous of her. Jealous, but of whom? He himself would probably have been quite unable to say. In the first place, to clear off any possible suspicion, certainly not of me. Besides, the fact that Mrs. Oak took only just a very little more interest in me than in the butler or the upper housemaid, I think that Oak himself was the sort of man whose imagination would recoil from realizing any definite object of jealousy, even though jealousy might be killing him inch by inch. It remained a vague, permeating, continuous feeling, the feeling that he loved her, and she did not care a jack-straw about him, and that everything with which she came into contact was receiving some of that notice which was refused to him. Every person or thing or tree or stone, it was the recognition of that strange, far-off look in Mrs. Oak's eyes, of that strange, absent smile on Mrs. Oak's lips, eyes and lips that had no look and no smile for him. Gradually his nervousness, his watchfulness, suspiciousness, tendency to start, took a definite shape. Mr. Oak was forever alluding to steps or voices he had heard, to figures he had seen sneaking round the house. The sudden bark of one of the dogs would make him jump up. He cleaned and loaded very carefully all the guns and revolvers in his study, and even some of the old fowling pieces and holster pistols in the hall. The servants and tenants thought that Oak of Oakhurst had been seized with a terror of tramps and burglars. Mrs. Oak smiled contemptuously at all these doings. "'My dear William,' she said one day, "'the persons who worry you have just as good a right to walk up and down the passages and staircase, and to hang about the house as you or I. They were there, in all probability, long before either of us was born, and are greatly amused by your preposterous notions of privacy.' Mr. Oak laughed, angrily. I suppose you will tell me it is Lovelock, your eternal Lovelock, whose steps I hear on the gravel every night. I suppose he has as good a right to be here as you or I. And he strode out of the room. Lovelock, Lovelock, why will she always go on like that about Lovelock? Mr. Oak asked me that evening, suddenly staring me in the face. I merely laughed. It's only because she has that play of his on the brain, I answered, and because she thinks you superstitious and likes to tease you. I don't understand, sighed Oak. How could he? And if I had tried to make him do so, he would merely have thought I was insulting his wife, and have perhaps kicked me out of the room. So I made no attempt to explain psychological problems to him, and he asked me no more questions until once. But... I must first mention a curious incident that happened. The incident was simply this. Returning one afternoon from our usual walk, Mr. Oak suddenly asked the servant whether anyone had come. The answer was in the negative, but Oak did not seem satisfied. 
we had hardly sat down to dinner when he turned to his wife and asked in a strange voice which i scarcely recognized as his own who had called that afternoon no one answered mrs oak at least to the best of my knowledge william oak looked at her fixedly no one he repeated in a scrutinizing tone no one alice mrs oak shook her head no one she replied there was a pause who was it then that was walking with you near the pond about five o'clock asked oak slowly his wife lifted her eyes straight to his and answered contemptuously no one was walking with me near the pond at five o'clock or any other hour mr oak turned purple and made a curious hoarse noise like a man choking i i thought i saw you walking with a man this afternoon alice he brought out with an effort adding for the sake of appearances before me i thought it might have been the curate come with that report for me mrs oak smiled i can only repeat that no living creature has been near me this afternoon she said slowly if you saw any one with me it must have been lovelock for there certainly was no one else and she gave a little sigh like a person trying to reproduce in her mind some delightful but too evanescent impression i looked at my host from crimson his face had turned perfectly livid and he breathed as if someone were squeezing his windpipe no more was said about the matter i vaguely felt that a great danger was threatening to oak or to mrs oak i could not tell which but i was aware of an imperious inner call to avert some dreadful evil to exert myself to explain to interpose i determined to speak to oak the following day for i trusted to him to give me a quiet hearing and i did not trust mrs oak that woman would slip through my fingers like a snake if i attempted to grasp her elusive character i asked oak whether he would take a walk with me the next afternoon and he consented to do so with a curious eagerness we started about three o'clock it was a stormy chilly afternoon with great balls of white clouds rolling rapidly in the cold blue sky and occasional lurid gleams of sunlight broad and yellow which made the black ridge of the storm gathered on the horizon look blue-black like ink we walked quickly across the sere and sodden grass of the park and on to the high road that led over the low hills i don't know why in the direction of coates common both of us were silent for both of us had something to say and did not know how to begin for my part i recognized the impossibility of starting the subject an uncalled-for interference from me would merely indispose mr oak and make him doubly dense of comprehension so if oak had something to say which he evidently had it was better to wait for him oak however broke the silence only by pointing out to me the condition of the hops as we passed one of his many hop gardens it will be a poor year he said stopping short and looking intently before him no hops at all no hops this autumn i looked at him it was clear that he had no notion what he was saying the dark green vines were covered with fruit and only yesterday he himself had informed me that he had not seen such a profusion of hops for many years 
I did not answer, and we walked on. A cart met us in a dip of the road, and the carter touched his hat and greeted Mr. Oak. But Oak took no heed. He did not seem to be aware of the man's presence. The clouds were collecting all round, black domes, among which coursed the round gray masses of fleecy stuff. I think we shall be caught in a tremendous storm, I said. Hadn't we better be turning? He nodded and turned sharp round. The sunlight lay in yellow patches under the oaks of the pasture lands and burnished the green hedges. The air was heavy and yet cold, and everything seemed preparing for a great storm. The rooks whirled in black clouds round the trees and the conical red caps of the oust houses which give the country the look of being studded with turreted castles. Then they descended, a black line, upon the fields with what seemed an unearthly loudness of caw. And all round there arose a shrill, quavering bleating of lambs and calling of sheep, while the wind began to catch the topmost branches of the trees. Suddenly Mr. Oak broke the silence. "'I don't know you very well,' he began, hurriedly and without turning his face towards me. "'But I think you are honest, and you have seen a good deal of the world, much more than I. "'I want you to tell me, but truly, please, what do you think a man should do if—' "'And he stopped for some minutes. "'Imagine,' he went on quickly, that a man cares a great deal a very great deal for his wife and that he finds out that she well that that she is deceiving him no don't misunderstand me i mean that she is constantly surrounded by someone else and will not admit it someone whom she hides away do you understand perhaps she does not know all the risk she is running you know but she will not draw back she will not avow it to her husband my dear oak i interrupted attempting to take the matter lightly these are questions that can't be solved in the abstract or by people to whom the thing has not happened and it certainly has not happened to you or me oak took no notice of my interruption you see he went on the man doesn't expect his wife to care much about him it's not that he isn't merely jealous you know but he feels that she is on the brink of dishonoring herself, because I don't think a woman can really dishonor her husband. Dishonor is in our own hands, and depends only on our own acts. He ought to save her, do you see? He must, must save her in one way or another. But if she will not listen to him, what can he do? Must he seek out the other one, and try and get him out of the way? You see, it's all the fault of the other, not hers. Not hers. If only she would trust in her husband, she would be safe. But that other one won't let her. Look here, Oak, I said boldly, but feeling rather frightened. I know quite well what you are talking about. And I see you don't understand the matter in the very least. I do. I have watched you and watched Mrs. Oak these six weeks, and I see what is the matter. Will you listen to me? And taking his arm, I tried to explain to him my view of the situation, that his wife was merely eccentric and a little theatrical and imaginative, and that she took a pleasure in teasing him. 
that he, on the other hand, was letting himself get into a morbid state, that he was ill and ought to see a good doctor. I even offered to take him to town with me. I poured out volumes of psychological explanations, I dissected Mrs. Oak's character twenty times over, and tried to show him that there was absolutely nothing at the bottom of his suspicions beyond an imaginative pose and a garden play on the brain. I adduced twenty instances, mostly invented for the nonce, of ladies of my acquaintance who had suffered from similar fads. I pointed out to him that his wife ought to have an outlet for her imaginative and theatrical over-energy. I advised him to take her to London and plunge her into some set where everyone should be more or less in a similar condition. I laughed at the notion of there being any hidden individual about the house. I explained to Oak that he was suffering from delusions, and called upon so conscientious and religious a man to take every step to rid himself of them, adding innumerable examples of people who had cured themselves of seeing visions and of brooding over morbid fancies. I struggled and wrestled like Jacob with the angel, and I really hoped I had made some impression. At first, indeed, I felt that not one of my words went into the man's brain, that, though silent, he was not listening. It seemed almost hopeless to present my views in such a light that he could grasp them. I felt as if I were expounding and arguing at a rock. But when I got on to the tack of his duty towards his wife and himself, and appealed to his moral and religious notions, I felt that I was making an impression. I dare say you are right, he said, taking my hand, as we came in sight of the red gables of Oakhurst, and speaking in a weak, tired, humble voice. I don't understand you quite, but I am sure what you say is true. I dare say it is all that I am seedy. I feel sometimes as if I were mad, and just fit to be locked up. But don't think I don't struggle against it. I do, I do continually, only sometimes it seems too strong for me. I pray God, night and morning, to give me the strength to overcome my suspicions, or to remove these dreadful thoughts from me. God knows I know what a wretched creature I am, and how unfit to take care of that poor girl. And Oak again pressed my hand. As we entered the garden, he turned to me once more. I am very, very grateful to you, he said, and, indeed, I will do my best to try and be stronger. If only, he added with a sigh, if only Alice would give me a moment's breathing time and not go on, day after day, mocking me with her love-luck. End of chapter 8